Books and Beyond with your hosts, Karen and Luisa. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations, and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl, and she works in a library, yeah. No, my haere my kia ora, and welcome to Books and Beyond. This is your host, Alison, and today I'm delighted to announce that Karen is back from an intrepid journey through Europe and beyond. Kia ora, Karen. Kia ora, Alison. Feels good to be saying kia ora again. Yeah, oh yay, it's so good to have you back. So we were thinking today that we would talk about Paris, um, because it's a, a city with such a, a rich literary history. And, and also because I was just there. Yes, and you're just <laughs> back too. So, um, and I, I was there a long time ago. Um, but we um, both share a love of the, the literary pilgrimage. And um, what better city than Paris? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, because of the, the famous literary graveyards, um, which sounds a bit macabre, doesn't it? But they are so interesting. So we thought we might um, make a start and talk about some yeah, of the famous... Do we mean we mean the rich literary possibilities of the rich graveyards? Because, of yes. course, the graveyards also have famous film actors and um, uh, politicians. Politicians and, oh, well. yeah. I mean, wandering through graveyards is always a favourite thing. But I, um, I, I must say I missed one of the two graveyards in Paris. I wanted to go to both, but I did get to Père Lachaise. Oh, yes. Which is just fabulous. Um, and that's the one I actually was couldn't wait to tell you about this, even before I knew we were going to do a show dedicated to Paris, because we had talked about Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Talkless um, under our literary power couple show. And I got to see Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Talkless's grave. Wow. At Père Lachaise. Mm. Um, I didn't think I was going to make it. It was really late. And all of a sudden, there it was. You know, fate led me there. But first of all, I have to give you an exciting piece of information. Did you ever know what Alice, what the B stood for in Alice B. Toklas? Was it Babette? Oh, my gosh. Oh, no. no. <laughs> I can't believe it. I was going to surprise you with that. Who yes. would have thought Alice B. Toklas had Babette as a middle yes. name? Babette's feast. Um, now, how did I know that? How did you yes. know that? Oh, All right. and okay. that was going to be a surprise. <laughs> that was, that was going to start us off with a moment of... Um, and that was, it was a, a tick for me, but instead it turned out to be a tick for you. But that is not actually on her gravestone. Does it just so say it Alice? Says, Alice B. Toklas, just like right. she was known as Alice B. Toklas, mm. which is good for Alice. And I actually um, found out that Alice, I didn't realize how much of a hand she had had in designing the tombstone. So there was, well, first of all, I learned that she was instrumental in getting Gertrude buried at Père Lachaise among the great French people that she wanted. She knew that that was where Gertrude should be laid, among the great. And uh, if you know anything about the Alice B. Toklas gertrude Stein relationship, you know that she was the muse, the friend, the companion, the cook, the, um, the wife. admirer, the, the wife, mm. chatted with the wives when the authors would come over. As Hemingway talks about, you know, she talked to the wives. Um, well, she told them, I talked to the wives. Anyway, she was so humble in this role that um, she designed the tombstone in such a way that when you arrive at the grave from the front, you see Gertrude Stein and her dates, her you know dates of birth and so on, and then. Um, on the back, you have to walk around the grave to the back, and on the back of the gravestone, it says Alice B. Toklas. Yeah, I find that really sad. 
yeah. in a way. Um, it's poignant. Although it's also kind of a quirky thing. It's kind of typical Alice in a way, isn't it? Yeah. I think maybe we find it sad because of a more modern approach to couples as equals. Yeah. Whereas I think in those days it was a lot more accepted that there was the muse and there was the great person. Whereas we think of Alice as a great person on her own right. Mm. <laughs> so am I looking at that through a lens of 21st century? Possibly. Possibly. Yeah. 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 But anyway, she, so that was really great. And then the other, oh, it was really nice also to see, I always love seeing what fans leave on the grave. Mm-hmm. So Gertrude had um, a little, uh, interesting, a little flower pot that was filled with pens and pencils that people had brought and a book, which I couldn't quite tell what book it was, and possibly one of hers, possibly mm-hmm. someone, one written by one of her fans. And then a little heart. So this is the big thing, putting stones on the graves now. And she had a little heart made of dark stones, which is, um, you know, a little bit better perhaps in terms of the upkeep of the cemetery than the graves that have that problem, the graffiti problem. Oh, so nobody yes. seemed to want to graffiti Alice, um, Alice and Gertrude's grave. I'm glad about that. But mm. I did see, and I'm mentioning this because of this horrible heartbreak of going back to Oscar Wilde's grave oh. and discovering that they have built a glass wall around it because there was a graffiti um, tradition with Oscar Wilde's grave. You, you, did you see it when you were there? Yes. And, you know, the kisses. Kissing. People would leave lipstick kisses all over the gravestone. All over the grave. And um, apparently, uh, sadly, so I was really upset. They built a big glass thing around. You can barely see it. Turns out that there was a scientific reason because upon cleaning the grave of these lipstick marks, you were, there was the stone was eroding. It's probably limestone, mm. marble type stuff. So, um, so this was put forth as a way to preserve the sculpture. But um, the question is, would it not have looked better with the lipstick? on it would you yeah. not have appreciated the sculpture better as it was with the lipstick then rather than a glass wall around it which is now covered with lipstick so which you can is kind of see. gross too isn't yeah, it the, it is oh, kind of gross you're right yes. all the lipstick on the glass uh, is really gross and it impeded my vision of the testicles of the statue <laughs> <laughs> why did Karen want to see yeah, the testicles I was going to statue? ask you that <laughs> But you don't have to answer. I'm going to tell you. So the testicles, I learned, were at the center of a long, uh, another controversy. We speaking about controversies about graffiti. So there was a controversy about the um, the actual statue. So Oscar Wilde, um, another literary pilgrimage you can make in Paris is you can actually go to the hotel where he died. Oh. A sad and broken man after doing his two years of hard labor in England for sodomy mm. and uh, gross indecency, I believe it was. And that was the famous hotel where he looked at the wallpaper. He was already on his deathbed and said, either the wallpaper has to go or I do. (laughs) Yeah. Um, anyway, and he ended up dying there, again, poor, buried in a pauper's grave. But his friend, Robbie Ross, who was also his literary executor, uh, got together money from contributions. And he had him transferred to Père Lachaise. And he had Jacob Epstein, the sculptor, in the 20s, did a beautiful statue, a kind of art deco, um, a, sort of a Syrian-like, like sort of a flying sphinx. And apparently there was a big problem here because... Um, the testicles of the Sphinx were too big, and 
<laughs> they <laughs> the French plastered them over, and um, and this and then Jacob Esson fought that, and then he went mm-hmm. back and he was working on them at night. And in the meantime, Robbie Ross decided the way to solve this problem was to cover them with a bronze butterfly. Mm-hmm. He had to have lived; it had to have been in the 30s. You know, you can't yes. <laughs> think nowadays we would put a bronze butterfly, but at the time, and um, and then the bronze butterfly got stolen <laughs> off the grave, possibly by Alistair Crowley, and then. Um, the testicles continued to offend and were eventually vandalized and carried away completely, leaving the... um the statue testicleless, and the testicles have never been found. There was a rumor that the cemetery manager was using them as paperweights. <laughs> so, <laughs> apparently, in um, about twenty years ago, a silver prothesis was re- was put onto oh, the grave yeah. to replace the stolen mm-hmm. testicles. But I couldn't see them through all the it's, the lipsticks. Oh yes, yeah. yeah. But I think Oscar Wilde would probably be quite amused by all of that. Carry on. I think With he would have testicles. quite liked it, just yes. like I think probably Jim Morrison quite likes all the graffiti that says Lizard yes. King. <laughs> yes, on his grave. Now, I remember seeing that when I, um, that grave when I was in Paris. and But I do remember all the beer bottles that were were left around there. And I was trying to think today whether I left a beer bottle as well. Can't mm. remember. What, yes. what kind of beer would that have been? Yeah. I guess that's the question. Was yeah, it that is silver, gold, bronze? <laughs> yes, that's right. I just hope it wasn't something like Foster's. She's not, I know she's being a bit cagey here. You're not yes. telling us what it's not, but you're not What's telling not? us what it is. What it was, I can't remember. Yeah, I um, have this, I remember asking somebody saying, oh, because they have um, little maps they give you of the cemetery. and um, But Jim Morrison, I figured, wasn't going to be on. I think it was he hadn't died that long ago. And mm. I was saying to people, will I be able to find Jim Morrison's grave? And they all said, you just keep walking until you start seeing beer bottles <laughs> and Lizard King written everywhere. Because it's even in the lead up to, yes. the, to finding the grave. Yeah. And because now it's... Um, uh, got a metal barricade around it, hasn't it? I think with has it got padlocks or something? I'm sure it does. I yes. didn't go see it this time, oh. um, but I'm sure that it's absolutely full of padlocks because you cannot yes. put a metal barrier anywhere in Europe. Love locks, love, oh, love, love lock. locks. Yeah, not padlocks. Yes, and I'm just oh. I'm glad. I think Jim Morrison might have been happy with the beer bottles and the lizard yes. king. I don't think he would have been happy with love locks. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so absolutely, just as well. Yes, well, um, as we were saying, things. Have changed a lot in Paris over the years and um, because neither you and I have been or had been there for many years and um, I was wondering in, in a true Parisian way we'll just say many years many, so they have yes. these great terms for many, age and yes <laughs> a certain number a of certain years. age and then and then after a certain age comes the no age they have oh, the, when okay. you get to a certain um, period of your later life and then you're, you're just called you're a woman with no ageless yes and timeless um so you were saying that you'd noticed a lot of change um partic- particularly around the left bank yeah well i have to say i um in some ways i saw less change in other european cities in the sense that the french have that civic sense where for instance there was no graffiti if you go oh. to berlin and you just mm-hmm. see the first two floors of every building anywhere in berlin are just covered with layers oh. of graffiti a new way of living a city i have to say i try to keep an open mind mm. in that sense although i don't think i would have been happy to see it at paris paris doesn't have graffiti this is really interesting, but what it does have, what it has to come to, is the um, the shopping craze, mm. and so that thing that I call airplane 
what's it called? Air, airport, I call it, what's it called? <laughs> airport lobby, you know, that's no, not lobby. You know how you yes, go to the airport and you have to walk through all the Zaras and H&Ms and Gucci's and it's always and the same. And they always look the same, no it, matter where you are. Exactly. So what's that called? Airport lounge or something. something anyway, like whatever it's called. And so we're walking down Boulevard Saint-Germain and all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's the Gap or there's Zara mm-hmm. or there's, and I, it's just, it was a little bit, I have to say, I hope this doesn't sound literarily snobby, but you think about the, you know, what is the left bank famous for it's the existentialist sitting in the cafes um talking about being a nothingness and now the cafes are like full of tourists and and big bears big teddy bears this is a big new thing which oh, i don't know where that big, came from <laughs> do you know about this no for no. some reason like big teddy bears were being sat in every outdoor location um and then um shopping that, that those same stores not that it was shopping but it was always the same stores that you see in any capital in the world yeah and um i was i must confess i was looking at a google map yesterday of the left bank just to get my bearings again but it was full of mcdonald's and starbucks and all that sort of thing which i don't remember at all i remember the the tiny little bespoke cafes where you'd have I mean, this is the thing, you know, like cities have to change. So we went into a tiny little cafe, but it turned out, you know, it was the, I'm not going to say the waiters were wearing little country uniforms, (laughs) but almost it was like, you know, the little bronze pans are hanging in the back. So it's actually just another surface level attempt to connect with you on a, on something that makes that, you know, stirs your blood. And Mm. I guess, you know, in today's world, neoliberalist world, consumerism is the big thing. So that's that's right. But but sometimes those old shops. So I was going to bring up this wonderful book that I read years ago. So this book is from, I think, 2010. Um, And it's called The Piano shop on the left bank. Do you know about this book? Oh, yes, I'd heard of it. Yeah. So Thaddeus Carhart, the author, had grown up in France, or for spent part of his childhood in France. His father was a military... He's American. His father was a military attaché at Fontainebleau, of all places. And he went back to live in Paris as an adult. So, of course, he spoke French perfectly, inserted himself more into the fabric of Paris. Mm. And he um, he's living on the left bank, and he decides he wants to buy a piano. And he discovers... He sees there's a little shop where there's a piano, a little atelier... Um, where they make they repair pianos so he goes in to ask if they can sell him a piano and he meets this great character who's the star of the book his name is Luke who first then and there won't serve him at all until he's been introduced by someone they both know (laughs) and then after that he um, has to learn about pianos he has to try them all he has to live with each one of them come back every month and visit them before he can pick the one that's actually going to be his piano so that it won't just be a uh, another piece of furniture yeah. in his house. This is Luke's big thing. And it was really, really great. And it's got a whole history of the pianos, how they started from, you know, the harpsichord on. And he's now written another book, which I've had a look at. I'm going to read. Um, haven't read it yet. Which is called Finding Fontainebleau, which is he goes back to live, uh, to visit Fontainebleau, where he lived just oh, outside yes. of Paris. So it's just, you know, half an hour from Paris. And that, I've been skimming it. So I will say it had a really great part um, when you say what's changing in Paris. So one of the big changes I noticed from when I was in Paris as a child with my parents when I went back was they didn't have those um, 
urinals or urinals, as oh. Patty Smith would call them. Yes. Oh, <laughs> as you told me, you yes. call them too <laughs> when we talked about Patty Smith. So Paris was famous for having these pissotiers on mm. every corner, this kind of metal, round metal thing where men would go in and pee into a little falling water in the middle of core. And it made the whole city smell like urine. Basically, you would, I remember as a kid just walking around going, I just smell pee everywhere. Oh. And so he explained the origin of that. Um, there's one left now in Paris. They've all been taken out by, uh, but there's, there's left one just to show what it was once like. And the origin of this was, it was really interesting. It was tied to the French Revolution and oh, egalitarianism. So no longer could only the aristocrats relieve themselves whenever they wanted. Even the common man would have at his disposition every, you know, half, every half every kilometer. Block. No, what yes. am I saying? Every block. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a place where he could step in and relieve himself. So that put it in a whole new life. So that's it. a real egalitarianism. Yeah. Um, in in yes. true French and tradition. So you walk around Paris. Another thing I've forgotten is how on every French school written in huge carved letters is um, Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité. Fraternité. It's yes. written above the doors of every school yep. as you walk in. That's your credo. Yes. Which, there's a lot to be said for that, too, isn't there? Yeah. Um, well, um, a book that I have really loved, and it kind of is along the same vein of this, is The the Little Paris Bookshop by Nina George. And it's been an absolute bestseller. I think it was on our It was a top 100, yes. Yeah. So very good. But it's about um, a, a heartbroken bookseller called Jean Perdu, which I think is quite appropriate, isn't it? Because mm. he's quite a lost soul, really. But he um, has a little bookshop that's actually on a boat, but most of the time he's moored um, onto the side of the... He's tied up on the left bank. Um, but when he... When his heart needs him to travel he unties the boat and goes goes sailing for a while but um he uh, goes drifting in drifting, a way yes, drifting, about it, it's very, very appropriate the barge sort of drifts but down just drifts, <laughs> yes as as his heart does as well and um jean is a uh, a literary apothecary which i think sounds like a fabulous thing to do so he prescribes books for people that that come onto the barge and tell him about their their heart and what their heart needs. Oh, I love that. I love the way you said they tell him about their heart rather than saying they tell him about their problems. Their problem, yes. That's a really their, beautiful way oh, of looking at it. Okay. They tell him about their heart, what's in their heart. Yeah, um, but it, and it's a little bit similar to the piano shop on the left bank because often he won't sell books to people because um, they might come in and ask for some sort of bestseller or something and he'll say no or I'm, something that looks good on their bookshelf yes yeah. yes something that they're not going to read one of those sort of ones that we've spoken about in the past the books that people think they should ha- display and he just won't sell them or else he he drops them into the the river just to destroy or you know um and then dries them out so that the people won't want them. Um, so it is. It's it's just a wonderful book. I really loved it. It's very poignant, and it's about his journey as well. And um, his wife has he, he thinks left him twenty years ago, and he's really on a, a search 
for to find out what happened to his wife. But um, I've got the book with me here, and what I love his about wife, it, his wife left him. Yes, well, he she's disappeared. She's disappeared, and he thinks that she walked out right. on him twenty years ago. And so there's so, another theme running through. Yeah, and so. Um, the barge, the bookshop goes on a, a journey to try and retrace the wife's journey um, of, from 20 years ago. It's actually, and yeah, and there's some twists, twists in the, the river of the, of the story. Some and bends. The, the bends, yeah. <laughs> and it's very um, poignant and it's a bittersweet but charming novel. But at the back of the book, I'm holding it here with me, um, there's a, um, a section right at the end and it's called Jean Perdue's Emergency Literary Pharmacy. Um, and it's basically a book list that he calls Fast Acting Medicines for Minds and Hearts Affected by Minor or Moderate Emotional Turmoil to be taken in easily digestible doses between 5 and 50 pages unless otherwise indicated and, if possible, with warm feet and or a cat on your lap. And oh. it's this lovely book list of things like um, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and um, Kafka, Hess, um, Forster. You know, it's it's really quite, it's an absolutely charming. Does he have charming way on it? Oh, I'll just have a look. It is in order. <gasps> no, he doesn't actually. Hmm. Oh, Game of Thrones. Oh, no, I'm going to put it. I'm going to put it out. Oh, come on. We haven't read the Game of Thrones. We were no, just thinking right. of the TV show. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that, that was a, I really loved that one, actually. So highly recommended. Um, now, th- another book that really appeals to me um, is about walking around cities because that's something I love to do as well and that's the the Edmund White that we've both been reading or you read it a long time ago didn't you? Um, the Flaneur um, A Stroll Through the Paradoxes of Paris Considering that your profile on the radio on Planet FM page for our program says a self-described a flaneur. Yes. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. Self-described free radical. And free radical. Yes, yeah. and a flaneur. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm a huge Edmund White fan, as we know from past shows. Yes. But anyway, yeah, that's a great book. Yeah. I've just, I love it. Um, and I love his, his descriptions of what he sees as he's, walking around because he lived in Paris for I'm trying to think somewhere between 10 and 20 years yeah, it was a long it was. time yeah yes through the, uh, through the AIDS uh, epidemic yeah, and he had a boyfriend right. who died of AIDS yeah. yes yeah um, I love so much French boyfriend he, I should have said yeah what he describes um, I one of the quotes I, I actually wrote it down he says Paris intimidates its visitors when it doesn't infuriate them which I thought was rather good that's, um, yeah, that's a really... Paris, oh, sorry, say it again. Um, it intimidates its visitors oh. when it doesn't infuriate them. So, hmm. Hmm, I thought, but I just hmm, thought maybe that was I'm just hard to intimidate. <laughs> I remember being intimidated. I guess possibly the size, the size of its reputation. Um, but I, I found it quite a. I find it a welcoming. I find it a city that embraces you pretty much. It doesn't. I didn't find it a standoffish city. I always mm. find it a city where you feel like you're, you know, on a 
and it, it's a treat, and they're and they know it's a treat. I guess yeah, the Parisians know their city is a treat. They don't really care about you. <laughs> they're living their own yes, treat. It's yes. got room for everybody to live their treat. I yes. think one of the big things I saw changing about Paris is the outlying arrondissement. So it was always you know the cool place was you know the left bank. Well, it hasn't been for thirty years probably, but um, the growth of these new areas further out where there's large North African populations mm. or other immigrant populations and how um, how what a new kind of city it's created with new kinds of restaurants, new kinds of activities and um, yeah. Yeah, it's an exciting place, yeah. isn't it? Speaking of exciting, um, in this book, Edmund White happily talks about cruising, doesn't he? Which I'm allowed, <laughs> oh to, I'm allowed to talk about now. I will not talk about. But I love that segue. I just love that. So talk about exciting. <laughs> so, yeah, because we had had that episode. Um, so I should, in case you weren't there, in case you missed it, go back and listen to our wonderful Pulp Fiction show where I had described Cornel Woolrich <laughs> walking the docks of New York or Los Angeles, wherever he was, um, in a borrowed sailor's uniform <laughs> yeah. looking to pick up men. And I said, you know, Allison, that thing was a dragay. In fact, I knew yeah. it Yes, Draguet from reading Edmund White. And I'm going, Draguet, you know, what's it called in English? And, and I going, said, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I'm going, come on, Alison, you know you know. What is it? <laughs> and then afterwards, you confessed to me that you thought you might have gotten it wrong. You thought it was cruising. cruising. That was your first thought. But then you thought, what if I got it wrong? And Karen was going in a completely different direction. Yes. <laughs> and I thought, what if it's something like watercolor painting? And, and I said, cruising. <laughs> you think, what's wrong with you? Yeah. yeah. So he's got a whole bit about the cruising on the Ile Saint-Louis, doesn't mm. he? Yeah. Mm. But really interesting. He's very open about, oh, yeah. about his life. So the Ile Saint-Louis, he lived on the Ile Saint-Louis. It was one of my favorite parts of the book. And he talks, because I keep picturing these bushes. He talks about yeah. how the bushes on the Ile Saint-Louis, especially in the part that comes down. So this is that island in the middle of the Seine. And the bateau mouche, which are these oh, yes. slow-going touristy boats where people sit and look at Paris from the water, go right by it. And he was always saying that they were in the bushes, quickly putting their clothes back oh, on. That's right. As when the, the lights... lights yeah. <laughs> and the lights of the bateau mouche will suddenly flash onto the onto the greenery. I actually had it confirmed to me last night by someone who was in Paris in the same time period, same time frame as Edwin White, that indeed, yes, Ile Saint-Louis was a well-known place right. spot for the... The, for um, wildlife in, in within the bushes, yes. hiding among the bushes. Gosh, the things you, <clears throat> excuse me, the things you learn. This is about books. This is what yes, happens, right? I know. Books and beyond, yes. things you learn. Yeah. Um, he has another book, um, which I've also, I'll just put it out there. Um, it's not so much about places in Paris. It's more about his life in Paris and his observations on what kinds of people the French are. A big discussion about the French need to always be right, which I found. Maybe that's mm. the intimidating thing. I think it is. The, the French yes. need to always be right. And it's called Inside a Pearl, and it's a memoir. It came out about 10 years ago. Yeah, and, I think yeah. it is about that yeah. yeah yeah oh he's so good um now we're talking about the intimidation the elegance of of Par- paris as well one that i love um is the elegance of the hedgehog did we talk about the elegance of paris yes, <laughs> perhaps we weren't perhaps i was just <laughs> you were thinking it in your thinking, mind yes. i'm trying to think so not jim morris and no. not oscar wilde's graves testicles not oh the piano the, possibly the piano, or the shopping the shopping yeah maybe yes i think of those sort of elegant women that you see in in Paris. But this book um, is just beautiful by Muriel Barbary. Um, and 
um, it's a it's a wonderful description of of Paris. Um, the main character is a concierge. Um, elegance of the hedgehog. Yes, had you said that? Yes, I did oh, say. You did? It. Yes, the elegance. <laughs> I guess I was still trying to think of where does the elegance yes. come from. <laughs> yeah. um, the, and the concierge is um, she's a a wonderful woman who's trying to hide her intellect. Um, and she's looked down on by the tenants in this upmarket apartment. And she's the one who actually is described as having the elegance of a hedgehog. Oh, because I always wondered, because yeah. I've, I've got the book and I mean to read it. And I have, you know, when I picked it up and brought it home, I did skim skim parts of it. And um, she is a really great character and she is kind of prickly. But I was saying, is yes. there, I didn't know where that came from. So yes. it's, she's got the elegance she's, of a hedgehog. She does. But and her um, one friend in the palace is this kind of precocious. Girl. Yes, the precocious young woman. She's like twelve yes. or thirteen. Yeah. yeah, and she's the one who who describes her oh, as right. the, the hedgehog. But um, they talk quite a bit about the elegant game of rugby um, oh. in it. And um, I thought, considering we are in the middle of a bit of a rugby tournament, I think at the moment, aren't we? Is it the World Cup or or something like that? Um, and so they there's a beautiful description of the All Blacks versus France. Um, and the, uh, it's quite, it's written sort of almost in a sensual way. And um, definitely Jonah Lomu is is the great for, the All Black forward who runs so beautifully and elegantly across the pitch. So it's um, it's a great one. I, I recommend that. For Paris lovers. Yes. It's interesting yeah. how just hearing about Jonah Lomu has already brought a nostalgia in me and yet I think of that book as so contemporary. Yes. It's yeah. how quickly things going to be nostalgic, you know. It doesn't take very much time at all. I um, want to give you, just before we go, because I can see time is getting mm. short, but um, one of my favorite books about Paris, A Movable Feast by Ernest Hemingway. So this was a book put together in his old age from uncollected writings about Paris. Paris, but it's Paris when he was young. And he's got this lovely epigram in the beginning. Um, it says, If you are lucky enough to have lived in Paris as a young man, then wherever you go for the rest of your life, it stays with you, for Paris is a movable feast. Mm, isn't that beautiful? And isn't it yes. sort of like, even if you visit it, I think we could say, even if you were lucky enough to visit or are lucky enough now to go visit, yes, it will stay and, with and you. And you take your memories away with you. You carry them as though they're a little feast a little picnic basket of memories so that's just been beautiful thanks so much for for today karen i've loved talking about durian yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's been lovely yeah been really great um and thanks for for joining us listeners today at our movable feast um Happy reading. Until next time. Um, Kakite ano. Kakite ano. And haere ra. This program was brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day, every day